My name is John Keating, and I am the host of the agronomy segment of our podcast. Joining me today on the podcast, we have Matt Brown, our Southeast BU leader, Dave Lemke, an account leader out of the Northwest, and Dan Bjorklund, our grow agronomy and precision lead within the Grow Solutions Center here at Landis. This week, we're going to be giving you an update on what's happening from the agronomy business as a whole, primarily focusing on what's happening in the fertilizer markets in relation to the conflict in Ukraine. We're also going to be providing you some details on what's happening with uh, the chemical industry, primarily focusing on some issues around you know, certain AIs that are really hard to come by here in today's market. Then we're going to transition to our main topic of the month around the biological market. This market has become the wild, wild west of the CPP world, and we want to provide you some insights on what we believe growers need to know and consider for the future. Finally, we're going to wrap up with our product of the month. This is going to be a primary thing that we're going to focus on within the, the podcast and really want to focus on providing growers new insights around new products. All right, transitioning here to the State of the Union on the agronomy business here. I got Matt Brown joining me for kind of getting a roundup fertilizer, chemical seed. So welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, so everybody listening here, we're going to kind of break it out on the fertilizer markets here. Um, I'm going to provide some people some detail on really what's going on. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is, you know, we got to kind of have a starting place, you know, within our first podcast to kind of really tee up what's been going on in the market. When I think about what's going on in the fertilizer market, it's basically been, uh, you know, a rocket ship to the moon from price standpoint over the last 18 months. And unfortunately, the rocket still has fuel in it. So I don't think it's stopping anytime soon, especially with what we're seeing happening here in, in Ukraine. You know, kind of looking back 18 months ago, you know, we were really, as a market, kind of bottoming off lows. And, you know, the age-old adage, low prices will cure low prices. Well, that's exactly what happens. So, you know, thinking back to it, Matt, you know, Basically, when I started here at Landis back in May of 2020, you know, we're talking $100, you know, $150 UAN, $300 phosphates for replacement cost, sub $300 potash, and obviously a long ways away from where we're at today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about where the market's gone or where it was to where it is now, it's it's uh, it's astounding, right? And you think about publicly traded companies that yeah. that have shareholders that they're responsible for turning a profit with. And that's, you know, what drives some of this, right? Um, and as I talk with customers out in the field, um, you know, a lot of the questions I get is, well, we're going to wait because, you know, price has to go down. It's, it's too high. Can you comment on that a little bit? You know, I think the biggest thing when, you know, when I think about everything that's happening, what the farmer has to understand today is the issue is not because corn prices are higher. So you look back, you know, you look back to the summer around June of 2020, you know, we were trading corn around 323. We had some of the lowest input prices we've ever seen. And by December of that year, we were a dollar higher on nearby futures. But not really so much from the fertilizer standpoint had not changed that much. You know, it hadn't risen like what the, the corn market had gone up 30% by that time. You know, I think from a grower standpoint, what the growers have to understand, the reason we're seeing fertilizer prices so extreme today it's more to do with demand than it is really to do with corn supply or corn price. And also the biggest factor is overall global energy prices. So, you know, my favorite thing to talk about with farmers is when you think about anhydrous, you know, most of them think about it, you know, that's my fertilizer, whatever. Anhydrous is energy. It's natural gas, it's petroleum coke, it's coal. When those things are tight globally, the price of fertilizer is naturally going to go up. And 
you know, most people that ever talk to me always say, well, we only got three or $4 gas here in the United States. How can that, how can that be? Well, you know, if, if, if you're really looking at what's happened over the last 18 months, you know, there's been plenty of articles written about high gas prices in Europe, you know, lack of coal supply to China. Those are the biggest issues around why we're seeing these prices really escalate to the point where they're at. From the demand side, you know, the North American farmer and the Brazilian farmer are in a battle for inputs. You know, you know, how many times do you talk to your farmers and, you know, they obviously know what's happening on export soybeans to China, right? They, they follow that, that statistic on how their bean is competitive into the Chinese market versus Brazilian bean. But not very many of them pay attention to what it is in relation to what the, the Brazilian buyer is paying for potash prices versus what the U.S. farmer is paying for potash prices. And over the past 18 months, I would say it's pretty much been consistent that the U.S. farmer is paying at anywhere from a $50 to $100 discount per ton than what the Brazilian buyer is going to pay in potash alone. So, I mean, you know, when I, when I think about for everybody listening here and when you really want to put fertilizer into this bucket of corn price, it's so far from that, it's not even funny. It's a globally traded commodity that has its own supply and demand situation that, you know, you have to really understand what's happening globally from an agricultural standpoint, from an energy standpoint, to really be able to say, justify where prices are going. Yeah, and, you know, circling back to the ammonia piece, I think, um, you know, price to value, it still is, you know, a better price to value than even when you start looking at 32% urea yeah. markets and things like that. It's still leading the way on a, uh, you know, cost per acre basis where it's it's still a little bit cheaper and a little bit better value add for the farmer today. Yeah, I mean, and I think long term, there's going to be opportunities for the U.S. farmer on and nitrogen prices specifically to either, they're going to have to be somewhat flexible on how they're applying nitrogen because, you know, there's going to be times where urea is going to be a pretty good discount to the rest of the products that in the deck that we're using, especially for the Midwest farmer. And there's going to be times where it's a huge premium to stuff. So, you know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, partnering with somebody locally that's going to provide you good, solid pricing up to date when you're looking to buy is going to be important in the market going forward. Because, you know, even in today's market with what's starting to happen um, in Ukraine, and we're going to get more into that is, you know, the U.S. market today is the lowest price market in the world on nitrogen. So we are we are not attracting imports to the U.S. market. We are actually trading, any, especially on UAN, anywhere from 100 to $300 discount to the rest of the world. So as public, as you know, when you think about who's the suppliers to, uh, to the U.S. farmer, you know, here in the United States, you got CF Industries, you got Coke, um, a few other smaller suppliers. A lot of them are, you know, they're for-profit companies. They're looking at this export opportunity to the rest of the world because the rest of the world is at so much higher of a cost situation. So, you know, and again, kind of coming back to it, you know, I really want everybody to think about this, you know, especially with what's happening, um, you know, just around energy prices. When Western Europe has to get all their natural gas from Russia, or I think it's 40% of their natural gas comes from Russia, that avenue today is now shut off. So therefore, you know, Western Europe produces a lot of nitrogen, or just in general. There's plenty of production over there, no different than here is here. You know, when you're when they're trading anywhere from forty dollar MMBTU gas to ninety dollar MMBTU gas, you're talking of uh, ammonia production from two thousand to three thousand dollars a ton for ammonia, fourteen hundred dollars a ton for urea, you know, almost a thousand dollars a ton for UAN. So with our low cost position in the world, you know, we have a huge delta to cover 
on from a margin standpoint to get to those markets. So, you know, it's kind of like anything else. I think the domestic producers are being somewhat diligent today to from a pricing standpoint to the U to the U.S. market, but that's not going to last forever. At some point, you know, we're going to trade up to what the world market is because. You know, we can't be this huge discount. We, we don't need to be this huge discount. It's a huge opportunity for other people to export tons out of the United States. So, you know, when, when I, if I'm a farmer looking at it, especially if I have nitrogen to put down for the rest of the spring, there's no sense of waiting any longer because there is no more discounts coming to the market with this huge, low, you know, from where we're at from a low cost position. So as, as our customers start to think forward into, into next year, that's been a topic of conversation. What's your, what's your gut tell you from a, a buy standpoint when you think, you know, we may have an option to start pricing some fertilizer in, uh, for next fall? I think the biggest thing right now is the conflict going on in Ukraine. And I, I, this kind of tees up the next segment I want to talk about with just what's going on over there. So to put that in relation on what they should be doing for next fall, here's some statistics I'm going to lay out for everybody that's listening. Okay. So Russia and Belarus are the primary two people that are being sanctioned in what's going on in Ukraine, okay? And the sanctions really that, that have been laid out are just rendering them closed for business to the global market from how they're going to transact business. So, you know, the, the sanctions that the EU, the U.S., and everybody's put on, they've put on some of the largest uh, fertilizer manufacturers in the world. I mean, Russia and Belarus in general produce a huge supply amount for the world domestically there's not enough demand even close to cover all their production so um here's one thing i want everybody to think about that's listening um so when we you know supply and demand on soybeans right we get our corn we got 15 million dollars or million tons of or excuse me million bushels of production we export 2.5 million bushel right so the statistics i'm going to give you everybody listening is relative to that so if you took if 2.5 you know million bushels is 50% of the export market globally for corn this is roughly what I'm going to tell you is the statistics. So you know overall in Belarus and Russia from an ammonia standpoint that's 24% of the global export supply. So that production but truly what's traded globally is 24% of the market. On UAN um, it's 31% of the market. Urea, it's 16% of the global export supply. Ammonium nitrate, it's 51%. And on potash, it's 40%. So there's nowhere else in the world to go make up that gap. Okay? So the job of the market now is to inflict as much pain to kill demand. Right? Because it's going to have to go to a point where people are going to say no. And the U.S. farmer today that's looking at the prices, there's plenty of them saying, yeah, no, no thank you. But, you know... A lot of people that I talk to always think, well, the fertilizer prices, you know, the manufacturers, $7 corn, that's what they're looking at. That's actually not the truth. It's the fact that there's enough global demand from everybody else in the world that needs that supply coming out of Belarus and Russia that are not going to be able to get it now. So the job of the market has to be to rally price to the point where we rationalize supply. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, you know, especially I think when I look at farmers for, for next year, um, the thing that probably worries me the most around is potash and phosphates. Um, you know, when you think about phosphates, you have to take ammonia to manufacture phosphates. And when you have 24% of the global export supply basically rendered worthless, some of the largest, um, you know, phosphate manufacturers in the world had huge ammonia supply contracts with Russian manufacturers, Ukrainian manufacturers to produce phosphates. 
Well, now they can't get that supply. And, you know, Russia exports about 10% of the global supply on phosphates. That, in my opinion, um, is maybe not the biggest issue out of all the products. I think there's enough global supply that could probably cover half that gap. But there's not enough global ammonia supply to cover the 25% of ammonia supply that, that you cannot go out and import now. Um, I think there'll be some different countries that will find a way to get a hold of Russian ammonia to make phosphates. Uh, Morocco is the largest producer of phosphates in the world. My guess is they will find a way to get some of it somehow, some way. Um, but it won't be completely, you know, the whole world won't be able to cover it. Another big thing that, you know, a lot of people aren't thinking about is just total sulfur demand. You have to have sulfur to make phosphates. Well, Russia is one of the, Russia, Belarus, I mean, the whole kind of FSU area is one of the largest exporters of, you know, pure sulfur in the world. Again, that's another commodity grade that we can't get a hold of. So, you know, I think it's my biggest thing I'd say around this is we've never seen anything like this in our life. Um, nobody has ever traded a, from a fertilizer market, has ever traded a market like this, period. Um, you know, I think about some of the world conflicts that have happened, you know, just in my tenure of being in the fertilizer business. They've never happened We're in a place where you've had this much supply or this much agriculture demand. Um, so really in the past 60 years, you know, when commercial grape fertilizers have come to fruition, there's been nothing like this to really compare. So... I don't know. Um, I think, I think that you know, in general, I, North America is one of the largest producers of potash in the world. Um, you know, if, if there's forty percent in Russia, there's fifty percent here, um, with the rest of the world kind of cleaning it up. So, you know, I think overall there's going to be some stabilization in the potash supply to the U.S. market at some point. But it's just again, it's back to how much more is the Brazilian farmer going to pay. Today, they're paying $200 a ton more than the U.S. farmer for potash. At some point, that price is going to come, you know, to equilibrium, to match it. So, you know, I, you know, as I think about the business, especially for our local farmer owners, I think, you know, looking at some potash pricing for next fall is probably in the near future. You know, phosphates at $1,100 a ton is a tough pill to swallow. Um, from a retail standpoint, it's a tough pill to take a lot of risk at. Um just not knowing what's going to happen. Well, I think it puts us in an interesting spot because if you think about some of the decisions that have been made or haven't been made around, you know, crop inputs because of those prices currently, you know, we, we've always been in a position where we've had that option to either yay or nay something, right, based off price or, but now we're talking about something different, that's supply. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't give us the ability to yay or nay because we just plain and simple may not be able to get it. And and if you skipped this year, now you're talking about, you know, could be a potential to have limited inputs the following year. Um, obviously, that's not a long-term solution when you're trying to continue to raise and grow yield. So I think it puts us in an interesting spot as we work through some of these supply constraints. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the biggest thing, again, is if I'm the U.S. farmer, I'm thinking about it just like I think about soybean exports, right? If I'm worried about, you know, what my price is at, um, for my soybeans, you know, I, again, I'm paying attention to what's happening in the export market. I'm paying attention to what's happening, you know, from a total demand or supply and demand on the soybeans globally. And a lot of times if I'm getting, you know, information from Stonex or whoever else I get my information from on the soybean side, I, I see what relative is happening in Brazil, right? I think it's the same way on the input side to where you have to understand what's happening in your next biggest competitive market to understand what kind of supply you're going to have. You know, I think 
overall, from a fertilizer standpoint, there's been a lot of investment into the U.S. market from a standpoint of the companies that are here, that import here, that manufacture here. And I think we're going to be okay on supply, but you, the, the farmer and the retailer are going to have to be proactive. And I would say at the farmer level, the retailer is not going to be able to take the amount of risk we have in years past just due to the price that we're at. And, you know, just it's just it's not going to be as big as what it ever had. So, you know, it's going to be more important than ever to be proactive because, I mean, if, you know, to put it in perspective, if, you know, Landis say we wanted to go buy a vessel of phosphate, today you're going to buy that out of a really unknown port that's going to take 45 days of sail time to get here. It's going to go to the Gulf. It's going to take at least another 50 days to get to where we're at. So you're 90, you know, almost three months into start to finish, and today's April 1, right? So if you started that process today, um, you know, you're looking at you know, not getting here until sometime in July, basically. But most of the time you're buying phosphates in, you know, for, from a retail standpoint, July. So then you're looking at October. I mean, it's just everything's been moved up from the standpoint of world supply is going to get tight. You know, one thing I think about, too, is, you know, there's been some anti-dumping duties that the U.S. government's kind of put forward to help domestic manufacturers from different places in the world that are producing kind of have a different, you know, production model. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if some of those things don't come off the table here this spring doing what's going on globally. So kind of transitioning, I think, you know, that's kind of round up the fertilizer side. You know, now I want to kind of focus a little bit more on the chemical side. Um, you know, for a fertilizer guy, you know, with that being my background, all I can say is I can't even put it, you know, as bad as what the fertilizer sound like, I can't even put into words what the, this chemical market's been like. I mean, one day it's there and the next day it's gone. That's about all I can say. Yeah, in my 15 years of doing this, I've never seen anything like this on, uh, you know, an overall supply. And it seems like every week there's some a new product that's, you know, got a, got a new issue that we hadn't anticipated going forward. It's kind of like the snowball effect, right? You start at the top of the hill, it's a little snowball, right? It's an issue, whatever. And then by the time you get down to the bottom of the hill, that snowball is pretty big. They're all compounding. It is literally all compounding. So, I mean, for some of the people listening, here's some of the the AIs or the, the chemicals I would say today from my seat that I see are the biggest issue. Um, safe and uh, metallochlor is a huge issue. There's not even close to enough around. Um, atrazine has been a absolute debacle this year. 2,4-Ds, any kind of 2,4-Ds have been tough. Um, dicamba, other than I would say it's primarily more of your Banvilles, your Clarities, not so much your Extendamaxes and Genius, and fungicides in general. Um, and I think the fungicide is just purely um, with where corn prices are, people are more apt to do a two-pass program to avoid tar, tar spot issues this year. So, you know, your BASF fungicides are, are you know, incredibly hard to get a hold of. Um, FMC fungicides... And, you know, I would say basically everybody's is becoming a problem now because of people trying to hoard supply. So, you know, if I'm a farmer and I haven't done anything on those things, I'm probably calling somebody tomorrow because those are the biggest ones we have to plan for today. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we've kind of had to revert back a little bit to um, some more of the premixes and filling in some mm -hmm. of these gaps with some of these older products. At the end of the day it's kind of the same grouping of products as it always has been, right? But we're going a little bit differently from uh, just an options perspective and being able to get glyphosate in the tank 
you know, traditionally we may have just had straight goods glyphosate and spiking in a, you know, yep. a Callisto Mesotrion type product. Now we're having to go to some pre-mixed stuff, um, which is which is not a bad thing, right? No. It's it's a they're they're uh, good value add products. I think for the customers that are listening, it's really important to work with your your local um, agronomist or who you're getting your chemical from and make sure mixing order and things like that is we start to move into some of those new products um, or new formulations better yet, making sure we understand how those things need to right. go in the tank. Because the last thing we want is uh, the people listening to this podcast have an issue with a sprayer and it's completely full snot inside. Well, and I'd say that too. I mean, the biggest thing too is just around branding, right? I mean, like today I could say for sure we can get you SMOC, but I, you know, I can't get you all metal too. You know, it's going to be a, a hodgepodge of different brands just to kind of get it all together um, you know, from an AI and, you know, for the most part, formulation standpoint, going to be pretty consistent, but by no means is it going to be all the same brand. I mean, glyphosate's kind of a hodgepodge the same way. You know, I think there, if you were really diligent about making sure you had supply, you were buying everything you could get your hands on. I know that's what we, you know, we've kind of done. And I would say glufosinate, you could throw that in the same bucket. So, you know, I, I think it's just important, like you said, to be having those conversations with your chemical supplier on, you know, what you are getting for sure, what brand it is, you know, what, um, you know, what your plan is for getting delivery. Um, I know I've been getting more and more phone calls every week about where the supplies at, when's it coming in, um, all those things. So, you know, it's just, a, it's been a crazy deal this year on the chemical thing. But, you know, the other thing I'd say is I don't think it's over for, I think we've got another year of it coming. So Yeah, the, we've, we've drawn down the supply chain, right, over the last you know, 18 to 24 months, we haven't had this big carryover from even a distribution perspective where, you know, the supply is tight enough, we're, we're draining the supply line. So that's the issue. We don't have that backdrop uh, like we have in the past to be able to lean on uh, as we go forward. 18 months ago, you could order something and be at your doorstep in two days. You know, today you might've ordered something in June and you still haven't got it. So, I mean, it's just a totally different market than what we were in 18 months ago. So, you know, I don't see it changing next year. I think, you know, as long as the corn price remains at a good value, you know, the chemical prices from the straight good stuff, glufosinate, glyphosate, you know, some of that stuff have gone up pretty crazily. But, you know, the premixes, the fungicides, really from a cost per acre standpoint, you're not, you haven't seen those, you know, maybe two or three bucks an acre, but not double, triple, yeah. six times what it was. So I, I think that's the biggest thing. Well, being proactive, as you talked about, I think is really important, specifically on the fungicide piece, as you think about if that supply is getting tight, you know, things like tar spot, we don't mm -hmm. know, obviously, we're not going to outguess those things. But I know as an organization, our fungicide sales are, are way, up, up. way yeah. up. And I think being proactive for the people listening, if you haven't done anything on fungicide to ensure that there actually is product in place, you know, to cover your needs is going to be an important step Uh you know, in the short term. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing too is, you know, it's just that planning part that, you know, in the past distribution or manufacturing's had enough supply. If you need it the next day, you can get it. If you're not planning today for what you're truly going to do, there's no guarantee around what you're going to be able to get in June, July, because it's, it's just the planning part of having that stuff in place, getting it bought early, getting it on farm earlier, getting it in our warehouse early. That's the biggest thing this year. I mean, it's just, it's planning. And again, I would say that's not changing next year. The planning piece, the more you can plan, the sooner you can kind of lock in with what you're going to do, the more successful everybody's going to be. So kind of rounding up here, Matt, I want you to talk a little bit about seed. 
Um, there's been a lot of issues on some seed supply on certain um, varieties. And just if you could touch base a little bit on that to kind of provide some guidance or a little bit of clarity on that with everybody. Yeah, I think, you know, seed arguably is the most important decision on everyone's farming operation, right? right. It, it sets the baseline for, you know, obviously the, the yield goals that you have. Um, some of these products have been on order since September, September. Yep. you know, and we're finding out as we get in and start taking shipments, um, you know, things are short. Some's d- due to germ issues, just overall supply issues from production, um, things like that. But I think the message is really just making sure that you understand what that substitute is and how it's, you know, is it the correct product that's being placed on your farm? And, you know, I can use a couple examples. Uh, you know, Decal 5982. Uh, is extremely hard to get and we're short overall as a company on what we had sold of it um you you go back and look at our test plot results from last year you know 5982 average 246 across all of our all of our plots um you compare that to uh 09z08 from bravant that yielded 248 same maturity very similar type product but it's a great substitute and so understanding how those how those products can can work or um, 12 co1 is an example from bravant you know yielded 244 last year 6391 from decalb is extremely hard to get um, so very similar yield results uh, but i think it's important to point that out and making sure that you're working through that um, as we go forward and place and trying to place the right the right products on your acre no i think that's good i think it's a good call out for everybody to understand again you know, just with what's happening in the chain, these plans we've had in place for a long time or, you know, been kind of turned upside their head on some of the seed varieties. And I think, it's, again, it's important to be tied um, to your local guy around, you know, what are opportunities if we have to switch and, and what are the issues out there? So, um, yeah, that kind of closes this part of the segment. You know, we're going to look to kind of bring the other guys in here to talk about uh, biologicals here. We're going to transition here to our main topic of the month. Um, I've got Dave Lemke and Dan Bjorklund here. Um, we're going to be talking about biologicals today and just in general, you know, what that market's going to be for the long term. Obviously, there's a lot of money being put into that market. Um, I've asked these two to join me because in general, you know, across their career, we got 87 years of infield agronomy experience sitting in the room today. So I thought, you know, when you look back over how uh, we've seen the, mar- the market and the industry transition, these two are both very, you know, in line with what's going on in the biological market. They've been testing a lot of the different products we're using. So I thought this would be a great opportunity for them to kind of bring, to come in and talk about, you know, what they see as, as new and innovative opportunities for the future, as well as to help, you know, you know, growers in general kind of weed through it. Every week I get a call from a new biological company that's starting up. Uh, I read a statistic the other day, you know, today the, the biological market is a $78 billion market. You know, the most analysts have that market growing over the next 21 years to $228 billion, which is bigger than the any CPP market that we see here in the United States today. So it's it's definitely something that everybody needs to be aware of. But I think it's also something that from a, from a grower standpoint, you really have to understand what these products are doing to get the biggest bang for your buck, as well as being able to weed through all the new companies that are coming forward with products. Um, and that's what we're, you know, that's what we're going to focus on here at Landis is providing people with good insights around what they should be focusing on and what they shouldn't waste their time on. So starting it off, Mr. Dan, what is a biological? 
Thanks, John. Biologicals are products that are derived from naturally occurring microorganisms, uh, from plant hormones. Um, there are so many different types of biologicals. We even, we're going to talk about some biologicals that actually feed the microorganisms. So there are several different things. Some are alive and, and, and some aren't. As I was listening to the discussion on the fertility side, uh, and after 40-some years of being in this business, it really blew my mind to think about we focused so much on NPK and sulfur applications over the years, and then micro, uh, micronutrients. Maybe this gives us an opportunity to start looking at a different area right right where that root hair is. And we, we call that, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but we, we call that the rhizosphere, that area that's right next to the root system. And that interaction is really what has created yield potential for all these years. And you think about 100 years of farming, what have we done to that environment. And so when you talk about biologicals, here's a way to address that. I have to admit before joining Landis, I would be classified as a little bit more skeptical when it comes to biologicals. Uh, Dave Lemke is gonna be talking about some things too, and he may mention some of his thoughts on what he thought biologicals were, but it's a whole new frontier when you look at this. So really what you're trying to say is you weren't trying to classify them as snake oils, but that's what maybe some of the people on, that listening to the call might have said them at one time. Absolutely. Dave, now you've been dealing with them. You, you know, Dave, he uh, really has managed our Farnhamville plot for many years, which Dave, can you kind of explain to everybody what we do there in Farnhamville? Yeah, I'd be glad to. And thank you for having me on the podcast today. My experience with the farm began about 15 years ago as a teaching location. And what it is, is 185 acres that the co-op owns. Over the years, we have done different things with it. We've done the answer plots with Winfield, and we've done our own thing, starting with nutrition. It began as a dream that we would teach our own people, get farmers in there, try concepts. And like Dan, for many years, I was all about the NPK, plant nutrition, amendments, the limes, etc., to get maximum production. But it's like we hit plateaus. We couldn't get any more yield out of it. So what's the next thing? And like Dan, I called them bug in a jug. I called them foo-foo juice, all this stuff that I didn't think had any merit. But, you know, we reach high yield levels. We can't go any higher now I believe we're going to need five products that add five bushel each to get to the next level. So that's what it's been about, you know. And to Dan's point, we really didn't know what we didn't know. And just starting out, we had to look at products, take a chance on some. Were they identical? You know, were they a biological live microbe? Or were they food for the microbes or were they something through the plant that was actually a micronutrient that would induce more root growth, plant growth, plant health? Those are the things we looked at. You know, and I think about the biological market, you know, in general for me, the first, and I'm, I can't say I'm a superior agronomist by any means, but the first thing whenever ever I hear biologicals, I think infero. That's for some reason, that's the only place I can go to, but 
you know, I think some of what we're starting to find out there, there's a much broader application for that market than what anybody would want to really believe. And um, I think that's really why, you know, when you think about the growth that's coming to the industry from that standpoint, you know, I think that's back to your kind of five products, you know, five bushel of yield per product. You know, it's going to be more long term, more applications that you have the opportunity to get that stuff on farm. Correct. And my assessment is we need to get the free ride along. If you're going to be putting on a herbicide, if you're going to be putting on a fertilizer application, can we add this without making an additional trip that costs and still get the yield impact? And I think we've done that with a couple of products. We've identified that they do consistently give us positive yield. Do they relieve stress? first of all, to me, is where they're going to have their value. When we get into tougher conditions, those are the products that will pay quicker. And one of the things that uh, we're going to do uh, this year is we're going to have learning groups, and we'll start at Farnamville. And you can, you can talk to uh, Yolanda's people on how to join a learning group, but we're going to take a deep dive into not only biologicals, but what does it take to go to that next level, and how do you manage potential stress because we know what the last two years have been like and we were very fortunate to get the timely rains that we received to get the kind of yields. We may not always get that and what I find fascinating about some of these biologicals is um, the ability to uh, fight that stress. Um, you look at corn right after flowering and you get into the blister stages when you're most likely to lose uh, those kernels. Uh, some of these um, biologicals have been designed to help during that time period. But we're going to talk about this. We'll have you out. Uh, for those who are listening that, that want to come out, we'll have you out. And uh, we'll be right there learning together on this new frontier of biologicals. You know, and when I think about it, too, you know, we kind of we segmented some biologicals. So, you know, for everybody listening here, um, when I think about biologicals, there's basically three segments, okay? you got seed care biologicals. You've got soil applied biologicals, and then you've got foliar applied. So, you know, kind of transitioning to that, you know, what, you know, what opportunity or what kind of applications do you guys see for the farmers, you know, looking forward around, you know, in a seed care biological, what should they be looking for? What kind of product? Um, what's the purpose of that product? Well, when you look at some of the um, uh, products, and there are so many, I'll just mention one uh, that we're looking at from uh, Indigo. It's called Biotrensic. And um, it can apply very easily right in with the graphite, right in the planter box, both soybeans uh, and corn. And they have ones designed uh, for each of the crops. And really what that microorganism does is it helps to uh, create a symbiotic relationship with the plant. Um, you know, you've been, planting, you've been using biologicals for 40 years if you use soybean inoculant. Brady rhizobium bacteria is biological. So you've been already doing this and you've been using it as a seed treatment. The difference with this particular biological is it's designed to get into that plant, colonize that plant, and help during that stress at flower time, which is really critical for yield. So that would be one aspect. Yeah, we've utilized those products several years now in our trials, and the first thing that you will notice in a good production year, you're not going to see a big yield response, but take plant stand counts 
and then look at the root mass at emergence and up through say V3 or you know a pop can tall corn plant there's a noticeable difference in the root mass so when we do get into these tougher areas of the field or tougher growing years I think they're going to be noticeably better you know it's an easy ride along the cost is not that prohibitive you know you're going to use a towel type product in the planter anyway here's one that you can add as you're talking your seed and John, one one that um, really intrigues me uh, is the fuller application um, that you're talking about. One of one of the ways to do it besides seed treatment and Utricia from Corteva, just fascinating in that you're taking a you're applying this foliar, this microbe is entering through the stomates into that leaf, colonizing that leaf, and fixing nitrogen in the corn leaf, similar to what soybean nodules do. I mean, if you would have told me five years ago that we would be looking at something like this, I would have looked at you with questioning eyes. I, I, I really would have. And now we've got something we've talked about, and I don't even want to mention the price of anhydrous, of where, where it could be, but if we could do anything to even help part get part of our nitrogen, um, guys, gals, you got to look at this stuff. Well, I'm, you know, kind of going to that, obviously here in Iowa, Pivot Bio is a pretty big, um, deal, and I would guess I would, would we classify that as a biological as well? Absolutely. You know, so you think about it, you know, there's, you know, everybody from as, for as long as time can try and figure out how does the corn plant naturally fix nitrogen from the atmosphere, right? Um, so, you know, looking at the environment we're in from an agriculture standpoint, people are going to continue to look at that more and more, especially in today's market. I mean, you're talking, you know, $1,500, $2,000 long-term ammonia that could be coming, I mean, so, you know, you look at some of these products that are out there, you know, what, from what you guys are seeing, what would you guys recommend this year from a, whether it's Utricia, whether it's Pivot Bio, whatever it may be, I mean, what should farmers be looking at this year, especially if, if they don't have all their nitrogen down, you know, should they be looking at these products right now? And, and Dave, I think you've had a lot of them in the, pl the plots out there at Farmville. Can you kind of tell us about your success or some of the stories around those products? So we would have two categories, the pre-plant, to help stimulate the soil microbes, Ficoterra. We've used that in multiple fashions. We put it out impregnated on dry fertilizer, in furrow with starter fertilizer, broadcast with pre-plant herbicides. We've put it in 32% UAN and done side dress, Y-drops with it. To me, the easy button is to put it in with your pre-plant herbicide. You can see it to the row, from emergence on, you know, we were seeing a consistent seven bushel to the acre response. And the second would be the Utricia because it does not have to go in furrow. I know a lot of our growers don't have in furrow capabilities. And with high speed planters, etc., you put that on as a V6 to V8 application. It can go in with most herbicides as a post treatment. The more leaf area that you have to intercept it, the better it works. Our experiences with it were we never lost. We never had a reduced yield or even were close to being even. Uh, as far as yield, we were seven bushel better consistently in situations where we should have got no response. And I'm really, to Dan's point earlier, excited about 
getting it out into some marginal nitrogen rate fields and see what we can actually get out of it. Because I think, you know, the economics are going to dictate we do it three, four times. We're going to use nitrogen applications yep. just to stretch it out and maximize what we're getting. I think that's the proper applications as we go forward because environmentally it's a good thing as well. I mean, again, back to my earlier point, you know, the market is trying to inflict enough pain to get people to try new things, right? Yes. I mean, you know, luckily there's some products out there that people, you know, have the opportunity to try. But, you know, again, I think I think that's the whole part of, you know, the new frontier of this market is there's going to be different things that are going to change. And it's going to provide people, you know, with that 40 over there that they know is marginal to begin with. Let's try it out. Let's see if it works. And if it does, you know, maybe it's going to be part of the whole plan long term. So I think that's that's something to be important, you know, and again, within the high cost market that we're in, you know, it's maybe an opportunity to maybe try a few extra things to see what you can cut. Um, obviously, everybody, we always talk about nitrogen as a yield limiting factor, right? Kind of like the weather, you know, it's, it's really big around, you know, are there a few things that we can add to the toolbox to pick up some gain to cut a little cost here, mm-hmm. but also gain some improvement on yield? Our capabilities of remote sensing and tissue sampling, I think, you know, we're at a point in our careers, Dan and I, where we've seen it, we've seen it work, now it's time to put it into a bigger practice and utilize these products to bring the yield to the next level without adding a lot of cost. You know, when you think about putting this into context, um, we can think about the wild crop ancestors that we had that really possessed a collection of soil uh, microbes that were much more diverse than what we have today mm-hmm. after farming for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. If we can if we can replenish that by feeding those soil microbes with Phycrotera to, to do that or to replace them uh, with some of the ones that we've been lost, this is going to open up a whole new uh, area and I don't know if I want to say it this way, John, maybe it is a blessing in disguise where we're at the yeah. fertilizer market. Yep. No, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, again, with the amount of people that are fixated on this market, you know, I think for the, the people listening to this, I've always heard, you know, or people on Wall Street would say, always, always follow the smart money, right? Follow the smart money to the right investment. There's a lot of big players in the market that are investing. You know, I think it's just something to be aware of. And again, it's it's going to be an ever-changing market. Again, you know, as being the agronomy leader at uh, Landis, I probably get a call, again, every week from a new company that wants to sell us something. Whether And, and most recently, it's primarily been a lot of different biological companies. But you've got companies like Mosaic, you know, Corteva, you know, I think Yara, you know, big international ag companies that are really trying to get into this niche space. I think they've seen a lot of startup companies that have come into it and been successful. And, you know, they've got the financial firepower to really invest and grow something like that. So, you know, I think for everybody that's listening, I I would definitely say not every product is going to work on every acre. And I think some of these products, you know, there's going to be a lot of products that are going to be sold locally from somebody that's not maybe your local co-op or your local retailer, you know, it's going to be a a farmer dealer situation or even a company that's got sales staff out there trying to sell these products at the farm gate. I think it's going to be important to partner with people that have the data around, you know, locally that 
products are working within your area without you having to make that investment and that risk and trying. You know, I know that's one thing that we're going to focus on across our trade territory is to get products in that we get some data on and can provide back to the farmer to provide, you know, a really good idea around what is working and kind of try to help really weed out all these companies that are coming forward with products that may not fit. You know, think about the biological market in general. It's you have to take a rifle approach to it. It's not going to be a shotgun. So I've got Matt Brown joining me here for this segment. Matt has been pretty involved with the product of the month that we're going to segment here today. FICO Terra, which I think Dave actually talked a little bit about earlier in the segment, is the product of the month. It's very applicable to as the you know point in time we're coming to here in the season for our farmers as uh, one of our soil applied segments around the biological market. Something that we've been testing here at Landis for about two years here and seeing really good response. So that's why we're, we're definitely believers in it. Matt, you kind of brought this product to, to Landis and really wanted us to push it from a wholesale standpoint. You know, their biggest, you know, tagline or slogan is, you know, this FICO Terra, it's awakening the sleeping giant. What can you tell the listeners here around why, you know, why that's their tagline or what you've seen from it and what your experience is with it? Yeah, so let's talk about the sleeping giant. If you think about one teaspoon of soil, all right, how many bacteria and fungi are in that teaspoon of soil? I have no idea. So there's a billion bacteria and a million fungi. That's the sleeping giant. That's a lot. That's a lot. So 75% of those microbes in the soil are dormant. Okay. And if you think as an industry, what do we really do from feeding the soil itself? You know, we're always worried about feeding the plants. Or right. feeding. This is actually feeding the soil and feeding those microbes. So they're dormant because they don't have anything to eat. So they essentially uh, hibernate, as you could think of it. Um, so the, the baseline of the product is microalgae. And microalgae are an extremely effective source of food for, for those, those microbes that are in the soil. So the idea is, you know, wakening up the sleeping giant and trying to activate those 75% of microbes that are dormant which ultimately is going to make uh, better you know, soil health and keep that thing churning along as it needs to to try to get some more production out of that soil itself. Nope, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, again, you know, from what we've seen at Farnamville, you know, we, again, we've been running it for two years. We've seen about a 72% win rate on those trials. It's important, you know, if, if you're placing that product, where do you want them to use it? You know, Dave kind of explained earlier, he's used it in about every way we could possibly use it. I think we've seen the most success, you know, kind of that early weed and feed time where you're broadcasting before planting. But, you know, just kind of back to what you're talking about, about feeding the soil. Why is it important to do it then versus, you know, again, doing it at V5 or spraying it full year? Yeah, so if you think about, um, it takes a while, right? So you have to feed the soil and you've got to have a food source for uh, those microbes that in turn have to do their job in the soil, which is, there's a a time process there, right? So the earlier that you can get that on and allow that process to start happening, the more beneficial it's going to be for that operation. And, you know, you talked about the win rate. I think Helier, who's the company that that owns the Ficoterra brand, and all their research data shows roughly just under, I believe, a 70% uh, win rate. You think about how that coincides with the Farmville results at 72%. Right. And I think it was a seven bushel response um, the, over the last couple of years across everything. 
obviously that's one of the things that intrigued me. We tried this product, which is the what Dave talked about in, in the you know the purpose of Farmville to help screen some of these things for two years. We saw consistent results. It really pretty closely matches what they show as a win rate from all of their data points. And so it was important for us to you know, get this thing uh, to a bigger, more productive trial across our membership. So our goal is a 30,000 acre trial that we're gonna be able to track and have data points on to share, continue to share our story and with the rest of our customer base um, after this year. You know, target timeframe, pre-plant uh, is, is kind of for us the best. It's got a wide uh, use range uh, that, or ease of use, I should say. It can go uh, in furrow or two by two, which is another great option. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's not the option, then we definitely want it on uh, pre-plant or pre-plant corporate. Well, I think it's important too when you think about that, right? So we're doing a pre-plant. We're kind of activating those those that bacteria early in the season versus you know spraying it late to where you know you're kind of getting to the end of the growing season. It's kind of really end up not so much as as important versus getting it up front and getting that bacteria engaged early in the growing season and really getting it out there. So I think that's uh, that to me is where, you know, when I think about the, you know, from the segment of that product is, is, is a good idea. You know, just for everybody listening, if you're interested in the product, you can call the Grow Solutions Center at 515-800-GROW or, and we can get you guys some of the product or anybody locally that deals with our local branches, go ahead and reach out to your account lead. That product's going to be $10 an acre cost to you. Um, again, adding it in, you know, as you're spraying your weed and feed, there's no extra application cost. You're already going to be out there spraying that anyways. So a really great opportunity for that. So if you have anybody, if anybody has any questions, again, call 515-800-GROW and you can get Dan B. and B. Orkland, who's been on here today. And he'd be love to talk to you more about how that product works and where it fits in your in your farming operation. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this edition of the podcast. I want to thank all my guests that were on here today, Matt Brown, Dave Limke, and Dan Bjorkland, to provide some of this information. Looking forward to what we have coming uh, next month in April. Uh, We have a mini edition of the Grain Podcast coming out April 4th to kind of highlight the USDA Planning Intentions Report, followed by a full grain episode on April 11th. We're going to have another agronomy podcast April 25th to really round out and look at the fall fertilizer outlook. Um, so, you know, if, if today's information kind of intrigued you around um, what's happening in the fertilizer markets, make sure you you tune in next month on the 25th to hear really what our opinion is and kind of looking out toward fall fertilizer prices. Again, thanks everybody for listening and uh, feel free to call 515-800-GROW if you have any questions about anything we talked about today.